Nearly 350 years ago, in a damp jail cell, there was a man who was in prison for having services outside of the sanctioned Church of England. While in prison, that man would begin to write a novel, a book, that would go on to be translated into over 200 different languages. Over 150 million copies would be produced of this work. The man is John Bunyan, and the work is The Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote an allegory of the Christian life, beginning from a jail cell. And God would use it to bring incredible wisdom and blessing to millions upon millions of believers. Now, in this work, if you haven't had a chance to read it, I'd encourage you, add it to your list. Be one of those, not to pump up those numbers of 150 million sold, but to be one of those to glean from the incredible wisdom contained in that book. Though written by man, it is absolutely tremendous. In this book, it centers upon a, a normal average Joe named Christian who leaves his hometown, the city of destruction, for the celestial city. And in that work, he documents time after time his stops that he takes along his pilgrimage. And how ultimately the Lord in his kindness, this book is broken into two parts. Part one, focusing on Christian and his journey, his pilgrimage, and the characters that he meets and the places that he stops. And part two focuses on his wife, Christiana, and his children and other travelers that take part with them, following the same different stops from the city of destruction to the celestial city. In our section this morning of Psalm 119, the, the psalmist does the same thing for us. He gives us a bit of an allegory, but a very real, tangible understanding of what it looks like to be a pilgrim in a world that is not ours in the way that it is, but those who have been intentionally deployed by God in His kindness in this season of life, wherever it may be for you. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in verse 17 through 24 as we continue on our section through Psalm 119. Little by little, strophe by strophe. Remember, strophe is, is uh, poetic paragraphs, poetic sections. So strophe by strophe as we go through. We're now in Gimel. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Psalm 119, verses 17 through 24, and I, my hope for us, my prayer for us, is that God might use this text to shape us increasingly into a people that would pray like pilgrims, that would pray like pilgrims, that would persevere like pilgrims, and that would hunger and gain an increased longing to call others to join us on this pilgrimage to the celestial city that God has for us in Christ. And I've chosen to phrase our points today, not as points, not as principles or pillars, but rather as a prayer. To phrase this into, into one singular prayer or two parts of the same prayer, just as the Pilgrim's Progress has two parts, part one and part two, so too our sermon text today as we walk through this strophe has two prayer components to it. Part one, focusing on God's calling upon us as pilgrims to pray like pilgrims, like that's really what we believe. And the second component, that we would persevere like pilgrims, that we would pray in such a way that God would mark us as a persevering people in every season of life that He may have fit for us to endure. So, I begin our prayer in verse 17 through 20. Lord, will you teach us how to pray like pilgrims on this earth? And in that, would you show us that we are blind apart from you opening our eyes? Lord, would you teach us how to pray like pilgrims on this earth? Teach us how to pray like pilgrims on this earth. 
Specifically, that means for us, God, please show us that we are blind apart from you opening our eyes. Every one of us is blind apart from the Lord opening our eyes. Even as Christians, even as those that know Christ, our ability to mature and to walk through the earth, the different circumstances and heartaches and victories that we face, it is still by God's grace and opening our eyes and giving us understanding by which we should take our next steps. The psalmist is going to marry that very closely to the Word, but it begins first and foremost with understanding that the Lord must open our eyes. Verse 17 through 18. The psalmist writes, he says, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'll read that again. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. Now there's living, and, and obviously the psalmist is, is living because he couldn't write those words if he wasn't alive, correct? But we know there's more to living than simple physical life. Now much of the psalm, by the way, in Psalm 119, as we continue to read through and to pray through and to walk through this, you'll see a lot of this is very much connected to your physical situation. Hunger, difficulties, heartaches. He, he marries it very much so to your physical life, and he, and he asks the Lord again and again for physical deliverance. But he recognizes that there is biological life, and then there is true life. And true life is marked in being close to the Word of God, being close to the revealed will of God in our life. So true life is noted by living closely to the Word of God. I'll give you a couple references. You can write them down from the rest of Psalm 119 where he marries very intentionally true life with keeping the Word of God as he does in verse 17. Verse 37 of Psalm 119. Verse 37. He says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. So life in the ways of God. And verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. This is my comfort in my affliction, God, that your promise gives me life. The Word of God and life. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. True life is only found in living consistently with the Word of God. And then towards the, very, towards the end, 144, verse 144. It's the last one we'll look at. Verse 144. He says, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding. So give me understanding of your testimonies. Why? So that I may live. He's a biologically living man. And yet he says, apart from your word, your precepts, your testimonies, your truth, and my keeping them, I truly don't know life. That's what the psalmist does, and that's what he prays, and that's what we pray as well. Lord, show us that we are blind apart from keeping your word. Open my eyes. Open my eyes. In John chapter 10, in John chapter 9, John chapter 10, Jesus has these interactions with the Pharisees repeatedly. And the Pharisees were the most devoted of men. They get a bad rap. Pharisee is never given as a good thing in our culture. They were devoted, devoted followers. 
they, they, they thought they kept the Word. They, they memorized it, and they tried to help people enforce it and live by the Word. Again and again and again, they did these things. And, and it oriented their entire life. Not just what they did on one day a week, but their entire life was consumed with the Torah. And they sought to live it, and they sought to practice it, and they were devoted to it, and yet, in this time, they drifted from actually the author of the Scriptures. Many of them did. There were thousands of Pharisees. And in this one interaction in John chapter 9, towards the end of this teaching that Jesus gives, in John chapter 9, the Pharisees see what Jesus is saying. And they say, are we blind? Are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus gives his teaching in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, as it flows through, we can forget that he's speaking to the Pharisees, these, these ones who are ultimately binding the Jews from understanding who Christ is. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out of it and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You and I will never find our eyes being opened by devotion simply to religious principles. We will never find our eyes being opened by our greatest of efforts and might. But it is only by God's grace, the one who opens blind eyes, by which we will see. And that, as pilgrims, has to be the first component of our prayer consistently. God, would you help to open my eyes? Would you open my eyes? Even as Christians, Lord, you've given me salvation, but would you open my eyes in this circumstance right now? Would you give me understanding? Open my eyes so that I can see what I need to do next. It's this humble dependency upon God, and it's only Jesus that has the authority to tell you this. He's the one that can open your eyes. The Lord, Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the only one capable of opening the eyes of our hearts to salvation and as believers to give us understanding as we go through this life, discerning our next steps. Only God can open eyes. In Numbers 22, there's this story between Balaam and Balak. Balaam and Balak. Usually, actually, Balaam's donkey becomes the center of the story. But Balaam and Balak, in this interaction, Numbers chapter 22. Now, Balaam is a prophet. And it's sadly told that he is a prophet for prophet. He's a prophet for prophet. King Balak is the king of the Moabites. And he's terrified of Israel, who's, who's encroaching and getting closer and closer. And so he goes to hire Balaam, that Balaam, the prophet of the true God, might put a curse upon Israel. And in so doing, he, he seeks him again and again. He asks him to come closer to him and, and come in to meet him. And by the way, just a few weeks ago, did you know historically people doubted, not only doubted, they said, look, the Bible must be wrong, many because Balak is found nowhere outside of the Bible. There's no archaeological discoveries that show Balak, but it's old stuff, 3,000 years old, thousands of years old. Well, they found just two weeks ago or so, they found this discovery of an inscription that mentioned Balak, the king of the Moabites. It was pretty cool. The Bible, again and again, under examination, shows itself to be true and accurate in all of its statements and all of its ways. But back to our story. Balaam goes and he is summoned by Balak again and again and again. And finally he responds. Finally he travels and he goes to see him. And on the way, as he saddled up his donkey, 
God has sent an angel. The angel of the Lord comes with a sword in his hand, ready to strike. And the donkey has his eyes open. He sees the whole thing. And so he refuses to walk by the angel who's going to kill them. And three times he refuses to go past. And so what does Balaam do? He beats his donkey. And the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey before he ever opens the eyes of the prophet. And the donkey speaks back and says, what are you doing? What have I done to you? Because what it seems to be common sense to the donkey is still blind to the prophet of God. And finally, God opens the eyes of Balaam. And Balaam sees and he confesses his sin. And he hits the ground and he confesses and he worships. God in his greatness can give eyes to see to the donkey before even he gives it to the prophet of God. In our own life as believers, we must never beat our chest in pride, forgetting that unless the Lord gives us understanding, we will stumble and we will fall. But the very core of our salvation is the gift of God who has opened our eyes. He is able to open the eyes of the blind. And if you're a Christian, He has opened your eyes. That should lead us never to beat our chest in pride, but to humbly go to the Lord with, like Balaam, with our face on the ground, with a spirit of humility. God, thank You for opening my eyes. Continue to give me understanding according to Your Word. That's what we pray and that's what we hope. In the Pilgrim's Progress, I'm not going to give a spoiler alert, though you've had 350 years to read it. The plot is really exploded forward at the very beginning by Pilgrim who has what is called, he just calls it the book in my hand. That's all he calls it. He doesn't call it the Bible, but it is the Bible. It's an allegory. But he reads the book in his hand and he is burdened burdened deeply by God. And that sets forward the path in his life by which Christian will become a Christian. The Lord uses his word to burden us and to open blind eyes. Lord, would you never allow us to stop praying that prayer? God, open blind eyes. Open our eyes and open the eyes of the blind that don't yet know you. That is our purpose, being and making disciples being and making disciples for the glory of God. Open blind eyes. We know you can. We know you can because you've done it for us. We continue on our prayer to 19 and 20. Lord, would you make us believe that we are to be longing for you as pilgrims on this earth? Lord, would you make us believe, make us believe truly, the areas where we struggle. Let us be like the one who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, would you make us believe that we are to be longing for you as pilgrims on this earth? I say make us believe because I don't know about you, but when I have in my daily life, I never once worried last week for the following week of my life. I never wondered, what am I going to eat this week? Now, I did it in a curiosity way. What are we eating this week? But I never for once had a thought of, like, are we going to eat this week? I never wondered, what am I going to do when it pours down rain this week? Where are we going to stay? What about when the mosquitoes of Texas that are a species of bird begin to attack me? What am I going to do? I'm going to go inside. 
when we live in a life with so many of our needs met and the material blessings of God that He's given us, it is so easy in my life, in my heart, I don't know if you're the same, but it's so easy to forget that we're pilgrims in this earth. That we are totally dependent upon God in our, in our bodies and mind, emotions, and souls. So Lord, make us believe that we are, not, that we are to be longing for You as pilgrims on this earth. Make us believe that. Look what he prays in 19 through 20. I am a sojourner, a pilgrim on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. I believe that one of the most crushing feelings that you can have is to be on assignment and not know what you're supposed to do next. One of the most burdensome feelings you can have is to not feel like you belong. You have no home. You're around people, but you don't belong. It's a crushing feeling. The psalmist articulates it in verse 19. I am a sojourner on the earth. This is not my forever home. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Verse 19, imagine if Psalm 119 stopped at the first part of verse 19. Number one, this would be a really long sermon series. Number two, this would be a really depressing sermon series because we'd, we'd end in verse 19. I'm a sojourner on the earth and we just stop. He doesn't even stop that verse in this spot, does he? He doesn't throw it as a pity party. He doesn't make it simply the way that it is. What's he do understanding that he's a sojourner? Where does he turn? Who does he turn? He doesn't just stop there. He turns to the Lord. He knows who to go to. It's his understanding that I don't really belong here that drives him to his designer, to the light, to Yahweh, to the one that placed him there. He says, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. It's the fact that he knows he's uncomfortable. It's the fact that he knows he doesn't truly belong there that leads him to go to God in prayer. Just like when you're in a place where you're not connected, what do you have in your hand, most of us? When you're waiting in line or you're not around friends, what do you have in your hand? Let me call home. Let me see what my friends are doing. It's that feeling that drives the psalmist to go to the Lord. So us likewise, when you have those seasons of discomfort or you have those seasons of severe loneliness or the seasons of, oh God, I just don't know what to do next, be like the psalmist in verse 19. Lord, I am a sojourner on the earth. I know I am. I'm a pilgrim. So please, God, hide not your commands from me. Show me what to do. Show me what to do. I know I'm here for your glory. Show me what to do. In verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. There's an excellent biography on the man, Dr. Thomas Chalmers. In the early 1900s, he, uh, I, I, yeah, in the early 1900s, he was a Scottish uh, Pastor and professor, absolutely brilliant man. Absolutely brilliant man and excellent pastor. And he entered a season of his life of severe depression. Actually, many seasons of his life were marked by depression as a pastor. And he was in one of these seasons that he just could not pass through this fog. And he was reading Psalm 119. And he came here to verse 20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And he made 
verse 20, his prayer to God. His perpetual, nonstop prayer to God. God, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. He prayed that again and again and again and again and again for days, for weeks, for months, for years. And God gave him deliverance. But more importantly, in that season, God gave him contentment. The depression didn't leave right away. But God gave him contentment in the midst of that storm. May we likewise, like Mr. Chalmers, pray, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. The maladies of the soul of this life cannot be cured apart from Christ. Regardless of material blessings, they will never be cured apart from Christ. They're not designed to. There is a restlessness in our heart that will never quite feel at home. And so Jesus is able to say in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 10 in various ways, those who give up much to follow me will receive much. Those who leave father and mother behind for me. Meaning they, they, they cut them off. They pursue after Christ. He says, oh, oh, well, there's my father, there's my mother. There's my brother, there's my sister. The fellowship offered to you in Christ in the context of other disciples will begin to form and to meet a need in your life that is uniquely wired into every single one of us. And that is ultimately, we see that fulfilled in the context of the local church and how God has designed us, that we become brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We become mother and father figures in Jesus Christ. I believe those times grow even more intense in times of persecution. I've never experienced any kind of physical persecution for Christ, not even close. But I was trying to look and, and find out a number of how, many, how prevalent is Christian persecution in our culture today. Do you know conservative estimates put it around 90,000 Christians last year were martyred? 90,000 Christians, that's the, like one of the highest of all time. And to them still, the Lord ministers. Then the Lord gives a home. To them, the fellowship of the church increases because we're truly pilgrims, being and making disciples for the glory of Christ. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. God, would you help me to pray like I believe that's true? Help us to pray, Lord, like we believe that's true. So God, we ask that you would help us to pray like pilgrims, but also, Lord, we ask that would you help us to train us to persevere like pilgrims. Lord, will you train us to persevere like pilgrims, verses 21 through 24. Lord, will you train us to persevere like pilgrims? So in this way, we're going to pray two specific things that may be unusual. That's what the Scriptures clearly, repeatedly present for us. The first is that, Lord, use your ad adversaries to drive us into your Word. We pray, and the psalmist prays often that God would deliver him, but we pray likewise that he, in delivering us from adversaries and adversity, would use adversaries and adversity of his glory to actually drive us to his word. Don't just deliver us, but drive us. What a unique component of our prayer. When's the last time we, so, so when we pray, when somebody's under, under, undergoing hardship, difficulty, fear, anxiety, loneliness, we ought to pray, God, deliver us. But we should also pray, God, deliver us and drive us to your word. Deliver us and drive us to you and to your word. So verse 21 through 23. 
The psalmist writes, you rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. So, in Aleph, the very beginning, we define blessing as true blessing is to be in line with the prescriptive will of God. Blessing is closeness to God who's revealed Himself in His Word. Everybody got that one? So blessing is closeness to God, Yahweh, who's revealed Himself to us in His Word. That's blessing. So what would cursing be? To be cursed, exactly. I know my teacher would get, has, has got my back here. Cursing is, to be cursed is to be far from Yahweh, the Lord who has made Himself evident in His Word. So to be close to the Lord is to be close to the One who's made Himself known in His Word. To be far from Yahweh is to be far from the One who's made Himself known in His Word. So we're clear. So look what He says here. Look, look how He pieces this together. You rebuke the insolent. So the one who's become proud, they're filled with pride. Lord, you rebuke them. They are accursed ones. So they harden themselves according to your word, and therein they are accursed. They wander from your commandments. Now, some people, when it comes to living in the word of God, will say vile things. But I think my experience in the South has been most will say thanks but no thanks a very polite wandering away from the Word of God. I'm just not interested. Adam and Eve in the garden, that is what's repeated again and again and again. It sounds polite. Thanks, God, but no thanks. You do what you want to do. Total libertarian perspective. You do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. We'll be fine. Thanks, but no thanks. That's the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Wandering away from the commandments of God. Adam and Eve didn't commit murder. They didn't plot a terrorist attack. They wandered from the commandments of God. And the cursings that came upon them came upon all their descendants and all of creation. All under their domain experienced the consequences. So a response to God that says, later in life, God, a response to God that says, thanks but no thanks, that is the sin of Adam repeated again and again and again in our hearts. And so God's kindness in our life is, Lord, would you rebuke us? And would your rebuke not harden us, but would it soften us? Part of God's grace upon you and I is that we would see that our hearts are wandering from the commandments of God. That is God's grace in our life. God, show me where I'm beginning to wander. Show me where my authority is being placed somewhere else beside as a final authority than your word. That's God's grace in our life. If you are wandering away from that reality, may God wake you up because you are walking right into the curses of God as you walk away from Him. Blessings are closeness to God. Cursings are apart from God. The psalmist who is strong in faith, he's also transparent in faith. Do you notice that? Verse 22, he says, Take away from me scorn and contempt. Take away from me scorn and contempt. So he doesn't just say to God, God, it's all good. I'm doing great. 
doing wonderful. He's honest with God. He says, God, please take away from me scorn and contempt. Now, that's, that's a good translation. That's how most all translations take this. Take away from me scorn and contempt. But there's a Hebrew idiom here that's really neat. Our translators just choose, for the most part, to take it and apply it to us how we would understand it. Take it away. The Hebrew idiom used here is, roll away from upon me, scorn and contempt. Roll away from upon me, scorn and contempt. And I really like that because I think in that is an insight for us. Scorn and contempt and anxieties and hardship are like a weight that are on top of you. It's a tension in your shoulders. It's a weight upon your mind. And the psalmist says, Lord, roll it away from being upon me. Only you can roll this off me. Please, Lord, roll this off my shoulders. Please roll it off. When's the last time in your, last time in your life you were honest with God in that way? God, the weight of this circumstance, it is crushing my shoulders right now. Please roll it off me. In the context of your marriage, if you find yourself starting to get crushed, when's the last time you were honest about that together or honest with the Lord or, or sought counsel from a brother or sister in Christ and just confess that with your small group or others? We are we're being crushed right now. This decision we're making, I feel like it's crushing us. Lord, would you help to roll it off from upon my shoulders? And to be clear in the context, he's doing so, verse 22, for I have kept your testimonies. The, the scorn and the contempt that he's experiencing are directly because he is living for Christ. He's living for Yahweh. He's living for God. And because of that, he has scorn heaped upon him. The application for us is those that walk away, those that wander away from the commandments of God, they will wander into apathy or they will wander away from abject opposition to the people of God. And their opposition to the people of God happens for a reason. The reason that happens, it's not personal. It's because the presence of those that live according to the Word of God are a living reminder of the judgment that will come them as they live by the standard by which God will judge. And that's something we don't like. So he, he doesn't take matters in his own hand here. He doesn't take up the sword. Rather, he takes up prayer. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. And he fleshes it out in verse 23 to that extreme. Even though princes sit plotting against me. Even though princes sit plotting against me. So meaning the honored authorities of the world. They plot continually against the things of Christ, the things of God. Did you know in Psalm 119 the reason I call him the psalmist is because we don't know who wrote Psalm 119? Most think it's David, and I think it's possible, but I don't know for sure, so I call him the psalmist. But in this psalm, he finally solves the question. He tells us who he is. Did you see that? In the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, the psalmist tells us who he is. Now, he doesn't give us his name. But he tells us who he is. He is the servant of the Lord. I am your servant, he says. As you and I go through adversity in life, 
the greatest thing we can do is to remember who we are. Remember your true identity. That's not by what you feel. It's not by your hobbies and affinities. Who you and I truly are is servants of the Lord. So Lord, what's your commands for me right now in this season? Lord, what's your command for me today in this relationship? Lord, what's your command and your will for me? What's your precepts? What's your testimonies? I am your servant. As we pray like pilgrims, we will truly persevere like pilgrims when we remember our identity in the midst of conflict. I am a servant of Yahweh. That's who you are. And that is more important than your name. In verse 23, before we go on to verse 24, I do want to make one more point. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will what? Your servant will what? What's he say? Your servant will meditate. Is that what he says? Does he stop there? He will meditate on what? The statutes of God. There is a reason the self-help industry will never end. If the self-help stuff totally worked, there'd be one book and it would be done. But that, that area is never ceasing to grow. It's never ending. It will never end. Because if I was truly helped, would I stop buying it? I'll just keep buying it, keep buying it, keep buying it, keep buying it. What does the psalmist do? He goes through adversity and he says, Lord, I will meditate. Not to clear my mind. Not to go do some retail therapy. Not to go eat some good comfort food. Not that there's something wrong with some good comfort food. Every once in a while. But what's he do? I will meditate on your precepts. It's the adversity of life that drives the psalmist to the Word of God. So when you and I go through adversity, have you gone to God yet? Have you meditated on the things of God yet? The next time somebody comes to you for counsel, remember that. Remember that piece of counsel. Have you gone to the Lord yet? Have you gone to His Word yet? If you haven't, let's go there together right now. That's good counsel. That's the word. Finally, Lord, would you use us to drive your word into action? Finally, Lord, would you use us to drive your word into action? He says in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The word of God is meant to be lived. Counsel that's given is meant to be applied. It's meant to be executed. It's meant to be done, put into action. That's what counsel is. It's what you should do. Hey, what should I do here? Let me give you some counsel. The Word of God is meant to be lived. It's the script for our lives in a crude way. It's meant to be acted upon in our lives. And who is his counselors? It takes counselors and many. We'll see that in several parts of the Psalm 119. But your testimonies are my delight. The psalmist delights in the things that God delights in. You can write down the reference, Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is personified. Wisdom is spoken of like it's a person. And in Proverbs chapter 8, we see that God delights in wisdom. Let me read it for you. Proverbs 8, 30-31. This is wisdom speaking. I, wisdom, I was beside Yahweh. 
like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. The Torah, which is the wisdom from God, is likewise the delight of the psalmist. The psalmist delights in the things that God delights in because he's his servant. You and I are called to delight in the things that God delights in. And to delight them is not to win a trivia contest. To delight in the things that God delights in is to say, Lord, I am called to do your will in the midst of adversity. I am called to do your will in the midst of adversity. We can like counselors and we can dislike counselors. But the counselor who is the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers, he works through the counsel of his word to apply his word in our lives. And we are called to be his servants, acting out what it means to be faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in a world that is always watching. In a world that is always watching. Has God given you people in your life who have gone through adversity that have chosen to delight in the testimonies of God in the face of adversity? They've clung to the cross as their identity. They have clung to the Word of God in hardship. Those are the people that have shaped my life more than anyone, more than any professor I've ever taken. those people that God has gifted to the church to faithfully persevere through burying spouses, through sickness, through heartache, through prodigals. God calls us to be those people for His glory, not for our autobiography, but for His glory in a world that watches every day. Regardless of what they say, they watch. And they want to see what you do in the midst of adversity. And your faithfulness in serving Yahweh in a world that is not our own, in a world that is the city of destruction, will shut their mouth as they see the works of the Lord of a people who live not by bread alone, but by every word of God. In our next steps, in our next steps, two questions. The first, who will I pray for this week, asking God to open their eyes? If we believe as pilgrims that God can open eyes, He can open the eyes of the blind, then we must have the responsibility to pray for salvation of others. We must pray faithfully and consistently. So who is someone that you can add to your list to be praying for, that God would bring them to salvation, that He would open their eyes? You know, through prayer, God also changes us, doesn't He? God will change you and I through prayer. And you know what's going to happen? the more we specifically pray for family and friends and neighbors and others, that God would do a work in their life and He would open their eyes. You know what? The Lord's probably going to provide us with an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So who can I begin praying for? Write their names down some, at some point. Put them into your phone. God, would you give me a burden to pray that, that you would open their eyes? And secondly, simple open-ended question. Is there a reason that God is reminding me that He uses adversaries, and adversity to call us to Himself. I don't know this morning if you are heavy laden and burdened, but I know the one that can give you rest. 
we are pilgrims because we know Christ. It is Christ who has made us pilgrims in this world. It is Christ who has rescued us from the city of destruction. He is the one we have our identity in. It is Jesus Christ alone that is our living hope. He's our only hope. And He is the one we find our value, our forgiveness, and true life. Would you stand as a church family as we sing to Him in this time?